Welcome to the MLHS podcast. My name is Anthony. We are on a little bit of a heater now, getting these podcasts rolling. I'm excited. We're approaching playoff time. To me, this is the best time of year of general hockey. And it's the best time of year to have this podcast because we have awoken, I want to say, Gus Katsaros. How's it going, buddy? Long time, no chat. Yeah, it took a little while to get me up, but I'm I'm awake now. I'm ready to go. <laughs> like, I'm excited. I feel like we just had a pre-podcast with our whole conversation. It's been so long since we were able to connect. Uh, you're at Sports Logic now. Hopefully, I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, I know you're only allowed to, to say so much, but maybe you want to give a little bit of an intro in terms of uh, where you're at now, where you've been. I, I'm sure I'm not the only one who's missed you. Well, thanks, Anthony. I, I first things first. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak to you and and to do this. I I always enjoyed being on this podcast in the first place and just having a chance to talk hockey shit with you is always fun. Um, you're right. I'm at Sport Logic now, so I'm in uh, a product group that does some support for teams. I don't want to get too specific in that, but it's been a, a fantastic experience to be able to immerse myself in the the breadth of available data that they collect uh, for all of these games and, and the associated video and, and putting things together and, um, and just understanding or, or getting a better understanding of, of just how much granularity there could be in, in data that can provide such valuable, valuable insights. Yeah. And you come at an unbelievable time because the trade deadline wrapped up <laughs> and I love I love this time of year because the the way I look at the season, you have the initial excitement, which really lasts until about American Thanksgiving, because you kind of at that point get to the excitement of the seasons back. And then you kind of get a little bit after that initial five to ten games. And if you're a Leaf fan, it's probably between games ten to twenty, because we know inconsistent years they just chill for the first ten games and then everyone gets mad and then they pick it up. But then you get to American Thanksgiving and you have a rough idea of where the standings are. And then it's awful. Like post-American Thanksgiving, basically to February is absolutely painful. Like the best hockey part of that time is quite literally the world juniors. And then February team starts, it's teams are starting to look at the standings and they're starting to pick it up and players are starting to realize they might get traded. Their team might be adding guys. I'm, you know, I was even watching David camp and, Zach Austin Reese lately and suddenly it's like they're hitting a little bit more because their lineup spots might be in question and then you get post deadline where it's like the rosters are set and you're ready to rock and roll and I feel like everyone is so quick to point out the the negatives in the hockey world and whatever and I'm personally trying to do my part to hype it back up a little bit more because I mean, the hockey right now to me is unbelievable. Like, I love it. Like, I am, I'm jacked up. The product is fantastic. Absolutely. Like it. So now that we're through the deadline, uh, I want to focus, obviously, first, let's talk about the Leafs. 
And I know that we, you and I just mentioned a few things, so we can go off the hop, um, maybe starting with the Rasmus Sandin trading and, and get a few of your thoughts there. And then we can just go through the trades and the general thoughts of where the team stands. And then I want to look at Tampa and Boston too. I mean, they obviously both made moves two teams of interesting directions, but we'll, we'll start with uh, maybe the Rasmus Sandin move and, and go from there. So that was a tough trade. I think for me to internalize, I liked Sandin. I like what he brought and I understood some of the deficiencies in his game, but at the, the gem parts of his game were real gems and he's going to be a star in Washington. It was no doubt that he would have been a star here in Toronto. Um, but where exactly was he going to play? Was he going to be on the first pairing? Probably not with Morgan Riley signed long-term. Is he going to do things that are going to give him more ice time, like kill a penalty? Probably not. So you have him pegged in a specific spot, which is either a second or a third pairing. Chances are he's not going to stick around permanently in a second pairing. So it's almost as if it's a bit of a waste of the talent. So you take that talent, you give it the opportunity to flourish somewhere else, you take the assets back, and hopefully you're able to flip those or, or use them in, in a more positive way. It could also be as simple as something like, let's say, there was lots of rumors about Sandine's camp not necessarily being happy in Toronto. Perhaps they just facilitated, okay, well, let's make this, this guy happy um, by moving him to a position that he could be uh, much more successful at. And in the meantime, we're also trying to make our team a little bit better. Uh, better. It leaves a little bit of a hole. Um, but I feel that there was a narrative that was surrounding Sandine um, right before he was going. Um, and it was something specific about the Leafs being able to to recover pucks. So on dump-ins and, and things like that. And Sandine seemed to be the one that they pointed out saying that he's the one that kind of struggled with this. But I think that team-wide, they've struggled with loose puck recoveries and and pucks that are thrown into their zone. When they're pressured, they're near the bottom of the league in terms of how they're able to get the recoveries and get out of the zone. But when they do not have any pressure, they're near the top of the league. There's something that teams are doing where they're able to apply pressure along on a team level. It wasn't just Sandine, but it just seemed like he was the one that seemed to got pegged with that particular narrative when it isn't just specifically him. The Leafs generally need to do a better job and they have... How many games? 20 games left to be able to make that a better part of their team persona, because that is definitely something that I think that Tampa Bay is going to be able to target in the first round. Yeah, and Tampa Bay is a good forechecking team. And part of the trade also reminded me of when they traded Josh Levo. And at that point, we know basically Dubas came out after and said they pretty much had an agreement with Levo that had he not had a place in the roster that he was going to move on from him. And I'm not going to say specifically that he had that deal with uh, Rasmus Sandin, but at the same time, we know that he held out. We know that he wasn't going to be in the playoff starting six for sure. I mean, Timothy Lilgren might not be, and he should be fuming about that, by the way, but that's another yeah. story. Yeah. And so I could see why he said, okay, we're going to, we're going to move on from this. We're going to clear out the money. I do think it's interesting that he had, Gustafson come back the other way when he could have taken a draft pick at uh, to me, I would have taken the draft pick just simply put like that. So I'd like to draw another scenario to that. And, and in order for me to do that, um, I'm going to reference Jack Hahn first and foremost, he tweeted about Gustafson and we're talking a few years back when he was still uh, breaking into the Montreal Canadians. And he talked about his skill set being complementary to those with skill. So it's like, it's like adding salt to a cake. 
you add the salt to enhance the other ingredients because of the chemical reactions that it produces. It's not because salt is so vital, but it's what salt does to everything else. So bringing back Gustafson gives him a little bit of insurance. If any one of my puck moving defensemen go down, if for some reason we have a problem and we need to inject somebody, we probably want to inject a player that could potentially mesh with our skilled players in the most seamless of ways. So bring Gustafson here now into Toronto, and 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 you can kind of see something similar to Thomas Shabbat happening in Ottawa, where he was a good defenseman, he was a great defenseman, but once they injected a bunch of skill up front, he became a fantastic defenseman. So it, it's that skilled element that I think draws the best out of these players. And that's what I think Dubas had to have been thinking um, when he brought in a player like Gustafson thinking, you know what, he already has these fundamentals where we can kind of use him at a pinch, but it's nice to know that he can actually complement our skilled players. We'll deal with any defense, defensive deficiencies as a team, um, but we always need to be forward thinking in the way that we kind of want to uh, build this club forward moving, making sure that we can move the puck fast, get it up to our skilled players, and making sure that we can support the play. And he kind of pegs all those four spots. So I think it was really nice that he was, or at least the mindset uh, of bringing in a player that can automatically just be a very good asset, even if it's at the bottom of the roster. Yeah, I think, yeah, I should qualify that further in the sense that my holdup on it is that I just don't think he's going to play. Like possible. I think, I think if he played every night, he'd be fine. Like he's a skilled player, he has a bomb of a shot. Like, he can move around nicely. I, I think he can go out on the lineup and and look good. And if you said, "Here's your spot in the lineup and play it the rest of the twenty games," I just look and say, "Is this guy really going to be in the lineup?" Because I don't think so. And then in that case, would you rather had a third round pick or whatever? And then of course, at that point, the answer is going to be yes. And then it just kind of, you know, it's it's some level of PTSD of Ben Hudden and David Riddich. You know, it's like you paid for these guys and I understand you get the insurance, but then they don't play and and you're just sitting there at the end of it going, what was the point of that? I just, I was surprised, I guess, in the overall sense of that too, that he decided to further bolster the defensive depth because, I mean, even without Gustafson, they're eight deep and that's not including Connor Timmons, which I agree with them saying straight up, like, this guy can't play in the playoffs. I think that's a hundred percent accurate and it would be a disaster if he played in the playoffs. Um, but I'm surprised he didn't acquire a forward like that. That was really what I thought. I thought he was going to go get another forward to me. They look, they still look a forward short. I mean, Alex Kerfoot was on line one, literally their last game before they got hurt. Like they were healthy and they actively put him on line one. It's funny. I see a bunch of micro statistics, which really make Kerfoot shine too. So it's it's so not it's your surprising. Fault. It's well, your fault. <laughs> I, I, won't, I won't take any credit or or, or place blame on that. But uh, I can understand why the why the decision may have been made to say Engvall's going to the Islanders and we're going to keep Kerfoot and try to build around that. Um, he's a decent plug and play kind of guy too. You can inject yeah. him on that top line. He's not going to hurt you, but you can't play him there permanently. It's pretty clear he's not that kind of a player. So I guess when you move up and down the run, uh, up and down the lineup, if there's anything that happens, injuries, whatever the case is, it's probably better to have a Kerfoot than it would have been to have an Engvall. Um, He's better with the top guys. I think. I so mean, too. we never really saw Engvall play with the top guys, but I think it was because he could just be very brain dead at times. Like the, Leafs, the Leafs eliminated every guy with a blank stare over the past two years: Engvall, 
Richie. Like you go down the line, it's like when you saw the bench and you saw guys staring into the abyss, like they're no longer on the team anymore. They like they're I don't know if uh sports logic is tracking that or who, but they're all they're all gone. I think Kerfoot does have a pulse to some degree, just I'm gonna suggest that as a metric. Just scan yeah. the benches, see what they're yeah. looking at. <laughs> right? Just the the Richie like classic dead stare into outer space in the middle of the game. So like, what what are I doing here? How did I yeah. get here? Yeah, yeah. I it'd be it. like a bench clearing brawl and he'd be <laughs> chilling. So <laughs> it it just I just look at that group and and I go, ah, it's it's a tough one to some degree is is are they banking on Matthew Nyes? I mean, if Matthew Nyes walks in and he's good and the Leafs are healthy, their forward group is insane. Like if he walks in and he's good, like their forward group is amazing. He just needs to be a valid player. Like he just yeah. he he contributor. Because he just needs to contribute. And whether that means in a in a depth role, but being a good enough player to start generating scoring, move pucks the right direction. Don't worry about the defensive or any defensive edges that still need to kind of be sanded off. As long as he's effective as a player, it really doesn't matter. Um, I think that Toronto – see, I think that they kind of have a similar mindset to Tampa Bay too. We all talk about Tampa Bay kind of losing it after winning a cup and then they lost some players and they switch and blah, blah, blah. That core group of players, that's still Stanley Cup quality. So, I mean, if they have a healthy unit and they could put together these top top lines and if your top lines and your star players carry you series to series – and I tend to think that it is the star players that carry you from series to series. Tampa Bay is still capable of winning the cup. Um, it, 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 and I think that Toronto is not just looking at Tampa Bay too. They've tried to build something so that they're able to be effective over four rounds of playoffs, not necessarily specifically to the Tampa Bay Lightning or the Boston Bruins, who I think is probably one of the best team or at least the contending team uh, going into the playoffs here. They're probably... Yeah, Boston's I mean, the problem the narrative around Boston is just absolutely crazy. And they're having a killer year and they bolstered their blue line. They should go 16 and 0 in the playoffs, man. They're, they, you know, it's, it's on them. The pressure's on them. I would, I, I would welcome the Leafs playing them in the first or in the second round. I'm not saying, cause I think they would beat them. Although in my heart, I think they would. It's actually that I think they, the pressure would be off. It'd be round two. It would be Boston's expected to win. Everyone thinks it's Boston's year. I think that that really sets up nicely for the Leafs as the straight up underdog. Like that would be a, a legitimate. They, they are an underdog. Not like last year against Tampa was a coin flip, and this exactly. year I actually think they should be favorites. Probably, but but against Boston they would be a straight up underdog for Absolutely. probably the first time since Washington. And I think that that would go out very well for them. But Boston did well at the deadline. I mean, Orloff looks amazing. Yeah. Bertuzzi is is a good player. I once made the argument that you could take six Dmitry Orlovs into a playoff series and have a very capable back end there to do Absolutely. a lot of damage. He's a truck. So, I mean, they bolstered a blue line that was already good before adding him. They tinkered up front a little bit, adding some depth in Hathaway, and the Bertuzzi addition is just another. Uh, at the same time, too, though, they're still dealing with issues with Taylor Hall. 
They still have issues with Nick Felino. It's not like they're that deep up front that they can kind of absorb some of these bigger losses. So there are still some questions that I think Boston's going to have to deal with towards the end of the season before we even get into the playoffs. What I actually would love to see is I kind of hope Ottawa makes the playoffs and then they play Boston in that first round. And because Ottawa would have absolutely zero expectations that they would expose some of the weaknesses in the Bruins lineup so that whoever does play them in the second round has some viability that we can develop a strategy around some of these issues and really blast through Boston. If Ottawa get makes the playoffs, DJ is going to be like the bouncer at the club with a clicker, just clicking hits. He is going to make sure that they finish every single one of them. I he he'll know he'll it'll be it'll be the the Berkey saying of we're not going to win the series, but we're going to punch them in the face and bloody their nose. They will approach it that way. I mean, truculence, baby, truculence. That Ottawa team, begrudgingly, is like they're kind of fun right now, and they're in that that youthful, we don't care what exactly. you think of us stage, and that could be a dangerous a dangerous stage to play them if you're an opponent. And I mean, we'll talk about the Leafs goaltending shortly, but you know, I understand the season that Allmark is having. He hasn't done it before, you know. Just calling a spade a spade. If he was having this season as a Leaf, I'd be watching it going shoulder shrug. I don't know what this guy's going to do in the playoffs. I mean, he didn't even play the full playoffs for them last year. So he's got a lot to prove. So is Jeremy Swayman. Right. It's not like there's anything definitive there, but. That's not nothing that, you know, we've watched it in Toronto many years. Goaltending is not the best. And you've lived through Jack Campbell. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Play, playoff Freddy was certainly a, a treat. How did that puck go in from the wall? Like, just a loop of it. Yeah. So, yeah. but one thing I do want to say is I I did like. So I I didn't rate McCabe too highly, and I still don't. I think he's a solid NHL defenseman. I don't think he's a a massive needle moving defenseman, but he takes a good shift in the league, and there's something to be said about that. And what I like about the deal is the retention. You get him for two more years at, at two mil. And I mean, at that number, you could put him on any pairing and you would shoulder shrug. Like he could play on your third pairing at 2 million. And he's definitely more than a third pairing defenseman on pretty much any team at this rate. Like he's still mobile enough and he brings a little bit of jam. So I think that's a nice move that kind of sets them up. Uh, and Sam Lafferty's somewhat the same way. I think he's, blacking out a little bit and having a career year but he's still signed for cheap and he's still signed for another year and the Leafs forwards are swimming and and UFA call like half the forward group is a UFA so just having a little bit of another certain guy that you could have I mean you could look at him you could look at Pontus Holmberg next year you could start to build a little bit of a bottom six you know Matthew Nye somewhat in the mix so on so forth where you're not rebuilding half a forward group in the summer that there's something to be said for that you need some level of continuity some level of certainty i think overall that that would be a hard deal to criticize anytime that you could make an uncertain situation more of a certainty i think it's a prudent prudent way to go um I think that the Leafs kind of got lucky a little bit in the year that Lilligren really proved that he and it wasn't this year, it was the year before that. Um, 
I thought that they went into the season and there was question marks. What are they going to do in the back end? And they're missing a defenseman. And then Lilligren just emerged and all of a sudden, hey, I don't have to make a decision on that on, anymore. Now I got my roster player and now that's it. There's no more decision to be made. So I think that it's a similar situation here with McCabe. Now McCabe also kind of touches a lot of those things that we were discussing earlier. He's very good at, at recoveries. He's good at protection, uh, protecting under recoveries. So there must have been a lot more at stake um, to do a lot more of a deep dive as to why this player, one, fits in Toronto style, is required for Toronto, um, and the other stuff is a really good benefit uh, above and beyond that. Elliot Friedman said on his latest 32 podcast, uh, 32 Thought podcast, that the Leafs kicked tires on Eric Carlson. They kicked tires on Matias Icon. They just weren't able to do anything cap-wise. Um, so it kind of sees the situation is here. We needed a player that we can fit, and it had to be able to fit within our cap. They also mentioned that they potentially could have even made that deal by moving Kerfoot and making that money, but instead they made the decision to keep Kerfoot in the lineup and have somebody else broker part of that deal. So you could see some of the forward thinking here that Dubas is probably thinking, you know, uh, I, it's all about risk mitigation. I could move Kerfoot, but then I don't have Kerfoot. I can't move a player up and down, and that's not going to be Engvall in our roster. If I need another player, McCabe is the better fit than making a big splash with an Eric Carlson or, or a Matias Ekholm, although I really have a good thing for Matias Ekholm. That's a, that's a different story. I, agreed. Ekholm is really good. I think you could see the difference almost immediately oh. with Edmonton. Oh, yeah. he, he's a very good player. He was who I wanted. But you know what? Nashville retained 4%. I mean, at that point, why even bother? So it, 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 the math, unfortunately, has, is more of a factor to make decisions um, and especially when you're starting to make decisions based on your heartstrings. It wasn't just yeah. clinical, we're doing this because of this. We're, they're going all in. I mean, they had no choice. This is the year that they had to do it. Um, they make the moves with Ryan O'Reilly, you're definitely all in. Okay, it, regardless of whatever everybody else is doing, we have specific holes we need to fill, and they filled some of those holes with some of those other deals with the, the Gustafsons and the, and the moving Sendines out and bringing back Luke Shen and and the, the big one that everyone's going to look back on, and I, and I don't mean the Leafs, I mean the entire league, is going to be Chikrin because he's amazing. The question, and I don't think anyone doubts that, the question is whether he can stay healthy. But, like, you're watching him with Ottawa, and the goal he scored on Columbus was an absolute joke. I mean, he just looked up and said, I don't care, and ripped an absolute bomb. And you're like... How didn't every team line up for this guy? And that was why Arizona wanted so much. But, you know, he could be hurt next week. And it would be, you know, it's it's like when Matt, Mur Matt Murray gets hurt. You shrug and go, yeah, that's what these guys do. They get hurt. It's just that that's his history. But, man, if he strings it together and, and he stays healthy, that's a problem. I mean, he's he's very good. So that's going to make Ottawa, obviously, a lot better. Um, I guess that situation was really, really fluid moving in from the, spoil, the uh, from the point where they started to keep him out of the lineup in order for, for trade-related reasons and whatever new excuse teams are finding to not play players. Um, but you knew kind of when L.A. moved quick and brought in Corpusalo and Gavrikov that, okay, Chikrin is off their radar. Something's going down. And Ottawa comes back in, swoops in, and guts him essentially for a song, somebody with a pretty decent contract for at least a short period of time. And like you said, he's a very good talent. Health is a problem. And I'm going to give you another example of why that is a problem. Last year, the Leafs went into the playoffs with Andre Kashuk. 
Now, Andre Cash is yeah. a great player, but you can't go into the playoffs with a player that you expect to play in your first two lines, and then he cannot even contribute even in a depth position. That is a waste of a roster player, and you've now wasted that roster spot. So you can't go into the playoffs with that kind of uncertainty. I mean, even now, I when I heard the news about Ryan O'Reilly breaking his finger, it brought me back to Nick Felino, and I think it was your tweet that, or your, uh, yeah. your article that kind of really brought that out into perfect light. He comes here, the intention was good, the price was fine, nobody had any issues with why they've made the deal, and the dude got hurt. And it was a long-term hurt, and it just never worked out, and it is what it is. So now we have a situation where Riley breaks or O'Reilly breaks his finger. And now I, I have all these thoughts of, okay, is he going to be effective? What happens in the playoffs? What if he's not 100%? How's this going to affect the rest of the lineup? And all the thoughts that I, posi- that I had positively about why Ryan O'Reilly makes this forward group that much better now starts to kind of bubble over with a lot of uncertainty. You can't go into the playoffs with that kind of uncertainty. So Andre Kasha is that perfect example. Jo- uh, Jacob Chikrin for Ottawa totally makes sense because there are no strings. There are no expectations. It's just a player acquisition that is going to make them better immediately and will fit long-term into their, their, their general vision. Um, it, it's a, I actually love the battle of Ontario. I kind of would love to see it get a little bit of bite. Um, I'd love to see Montreal kind of get back into it too and really make hey, a dog fight every year. Okay, 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 okay. Okay. Sport logic <laughs> is based out of Montreal, yeah. so we got to throw that. Yeah, we're not we're not supporting too. the Montreal team. Um but I, I mean the competition there would make it really fun. It would make that this division entirely fun. Um yeah. So that's kind of where we are with that. Yeah, and I feel like we've spoken about this injury piece for probably a decade Forever. now, quite literally where you know, guys coming in out of your lineup is it's just a problem. You know, I don't care what you want to say. Guy was unlucky. This, that, whatever. If you can't stay healthy, it is a pro- is very difficult to build lineups when you are constantly juggling guys coming in and out. Now, when it comes to O'Reilly, I'm actually not particularly concerned about O'Reilly. I think he'll be fine. It's a broken finger. If he had to play tomorrow, he could. I genuinely he could. Got it. He's not going to, I, and and he should rest up. My bigger issue or, or bigger question, which will then bleed into an issue, is going to be Keith's ability to reintegrate him into the lineup and what decisions he is going to make when O'Reilly returns. Because, I mean, we were just watching 11 and 7. I think he's been questionable for two out of three playoffs that they've had. At times, he can kind of overthink things to put it nicely and you kind of question it i mean 11 and 7 in games two and three of three games and four nights on a west coast road swing just straight up is illogical i mean it is like there's no reason to go 11 forwards in that scenario czar was giving them perfectly fine shifts as a fourth liner it wasn't like he was playing honestly if they healthy scratch michael bunting i would have been like okay i get it but <laughs> but Zar was giving them professional fourth line shifts, which were not problematic at all. Uh, and then it was like this awkward song and dance, which is again kind of goes back to my extra defenseman thing, where now you've created this log jam, which is really just a pain in the ass for a coach a coach to manage because now they feel the need to get everyone ice time and you're just pissing guys off by way. I mean, if I was Timothy Lilligan, I would have been breaking things against a wall watching that Vancouver game. Like you have seven defensemen in the lineup and I'm not playing. 
and Mitch Marner's playing defense in the third period, I mean, I would have been furious. So I O'Reilly is a winner of the highest order. He is in that, you know, plays the game the proper way, check mark category. I think he'll come in and be just fine. I think he's gonna be full marks in the playoffs. I'm a little bit more worried about what the coaching staff does with him though. So there's there was a bunch of questions upon his acquisition. I, I tend to agree with you for the most part too. A broken finger isn't as bad as as something that would have really been like I mean a uh, a broken foot. It was a broken foot that he had earlier in the season. It was something yeah. like that or an egg or whatever. And it's it left was. hand too. He can't shoot anyway. So yeah, it's 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 just it it's fine. They can kind of live with something like that. And I'm sure there's some type of of they they be able to manage that kind of an injury. He plays best when he's moving, when he's doing things. It's not his shot. It's not his skill play that's going to make him what he is. So I tend to agree with you. So you kind of talked me a little bit back off that ledge. <laughs> Um, as far as the decision making is concerned, like we originally saw Ryan O'Reilly slip into the second line and it was all great Tavares and Marner, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I really don't mind the fact that he might be moved into a center role back into a wing role. I don't have a problem with those kind of decisions as long as they make sense for the time, um, and whatever is happening in the game series, whatever the case is. Um, but I think that I would like to see O'Reilly as part of that second line rather than an independent third unit. If he was on that third unit, I think that it, it, I, I'm just not convinced that it's offensively oriented. I mean, you have a responsible player that can really provide a big spark for that second line. And now you're making the opposition think, who do I cover? Do I cover Matthew's line? Do I cover the Tavares line? You force the other team to strategize and they overplay their cards. And then you can kind of unleash a bottom six. At least that's kind of what you're hoping for. Um, so I think that you're you're kind of right in the fact of where they're going to play him, what kind of decisions are they going to make. Um, I'm kind of hoping that they eventually settle on a second line role um, and see if they can kind of move players back and forth depending on situation there. Honestly, I'm kind of I'm kind of watching it, and this was probably the other reason I wanted a forward. I just to your point, I I just don't see who he will play with on the third line that it would be respectable. As opposed to you have O'Reilly looking around going like, honestly, like this is, I have to carry these guys on my back. It's a little bit. That's not him. Yeah. yeah it's that... not his game either. Right. Like it, it's a poor fit if you do it that way. And honestly, part of me, actually, this is funny. It, it actually goes back to circa Columbus series, Keith, where I say, you know what? Just load up the first line at like bunting is struggling right now to say the least pucks are dying on his stick the amount of positive touches that he is having is like one of every 10 at best plays are just dying there and honestly he looks a little bit confused i think a lot of teams are just wised up to his antics um no one's really falling for it anymore he's not drawing penalties because the refs have had enough you see him kind of yapping at guys and you know what, realistically, it gets old when you don't physically engage with anybody in any capacity. They don't take you seriously after a while. That's just the truth of the league. Um, I know it's changed over the years, but it hasn't changed that much. Like, you can't do nothing. You know, there was a very bizarre sequence with him and Dakota Joshua against Vancouver where he was, Bunting was standing at the top of the crease and Demko saved it and Joshua just gave him a little push. And Bunting tried to like turn back and raised his fist with the glove on to try to get him to flinch. And Joshua just stood there and stared at him. And it was so embarrassing. I mean, honestly, I was embarrassed watching it. 
and bunting i think was too because then he actually tried to sort of push off and it was you just kind of watched it and went you would be a good player if you just cut the crap out and focused on being a good player because he can do good things he moves around out there very well he can be a good four checker he is crafty in front of the net at times his shot is surprisingly respectable like you can do these things he's a legit 20 goal scorer in the league that's not nothing absolutely so but if he's going to be playing like this, I just kind of look and say, you know what? Put one of Tavares or O'Reilly on left wing and put Bunting on the left wing of line two with one of O'Reilly or Tavares as the center and one of Marner and Nylander as the right wing, like as you please. But that way you're fully loading a top line. And between Tavares and O'Reilly, they're both they're both horses in front of the net. Mm. Like, like they are grown men in that area. They are hard to move. They are tenacious on the puck. They're both insanely heavy on their sticks. They, the way that they Good can their boards too. Yeah. Yeah. The way that they win battles, all that, all that stuff. You know, they're not the big power forward creating space down low, but they are animals in the way that they can win pucks back and, you know, cr- create chaos in front of the net. And, you know, hopefully when Matthews is shooting and that's the scenario, he just doesn't hit O'Reilly again in the finger and break his finger. But beyond that, you can see the logic of it. I mean, they dominated that shift where he got hurt. That's what you'd want to see. And so I kind of look at the lineup like that now, which means you're now at a third line. Again, potentially on how Bunting's playing, it could be Yarncroft in the second line if Bunting keeps it up. And Bunting is on a third line with camp than lafferty which i mean it would work i'm not gonna say it's a good third line but i'm saying it could work and to your point and, and be respectable and you you can certainly you can suddenly start to put together the lines in your head and you're like okay so achari and czar on the fourth line they're professional bangers like they'll hit you know kerfoot somewhere in the mix there if nothing else skates fast so you kind of build it and go okay like these are pretty good and and you're looking at tampa and they look about as vulnerable as they've looked in years, which I hate myself for saying it out loud because, you know, Alec was saying to me on the weekend, he's like, they have 20 games to figure this out. But I watched them against Carolina and it was embarrassing. Let me tell you. Like, So I, I have a couple of different thoughts based on facing Tampa Bay because they knew that they were going to face Tampa Bay for a long time on it. It's, it's inevitable. You kind of already get that kind of, put the headline or the, the blinders on and you're going, okay, this is my first round opponent. Focus, focus, focus. Okay. So we talked about John Tavares being a horse. If you had asked me at the end of the playoffs last year, what my biggest concern was probably would have been John Tavares. He did not look good in the spring. He was either playing hurt, wasn't playing well. He had one game where he looked like a hero again, but for the most part, there was a conversation that was required. And he came out this year and he's absolute smashed that narrative. I have zero issues. So the Leafs, without making any deadline moves, automatically get better because they don't get John Tavares from last spring. They get John Tavares from this season. On that same vein, they are not getting William Nylander of last season. They're getting William Nylander of this season. And the offensive tear, the 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 some of the things like for instance, you would figure that in the offensive zone, um, you would have a player perhaps like Austin Matthews or Mitch Marner or even 
per foot or somebody that has the most defensive offensive zone touches. And it's not, it's William Nylander. Whenever there's a loose puck around, it's William Nylander that's picking it up. On another note too, Nylander along with Marner have the best tendency to set up one-timers. So from the outside, and I, I get that Nylander kind of operates a little bit on the perimeter, but the pucks that he sends into the slot ends up end up as more potential one-timers than any other player in Toronto. Mitch Marner is a close second, and then the gap really gets gets pretty big. So what you're seeing is Nylander not just setting up plays. They need finishers. So if he's not just giving the puck away for somebody else to do the work to create the scoring chance, he's creating that chance. He needs somebody to finish. The same kind of thing that I was looking at when Matthews was struggling a little bit earlier on in the year. Last year, when I looked at his loose puck recoveries, he would go into, especially when he was on a tear scoring goals, he would go into scrums, he would come out with the puck, he generated a scoring chance, sometimes it went in or it generated something else. This year, when he was going into scrums to get loose pucks, it wasn't so that he can come out with it, he was pushing it to another player. So he wasn't creating offense. He was pushing the burden of creating the offense to another player, and he was playing the role as a finisher. So that was a huge turnaround from what he was last season to what he is this season. Um, I don't think that that tendency is, is trended all the way throughout this season, but it was something that was really apparent early on. And I think that he's improved over the course of the season. So you have a much better Nylander. You have a much better John Tavares. We haven't even touched that. Well, we have touched that what Ryan O'Reilly brings. But those two players alone, along with things like less of a, a, a like a black hole that secondary scoring was last year in the first round too. If it wasn't Matthews or Marner, nobody was scoring. I think that the Leafs are in a better position heading into Tampa Bay, both from a, their stars are performing and they got some depth that would be able to kind of cover up some stuff. Um, last year, the, the biggest issue I felt too was something that, they focused so much on their power kill and the Leafs really did a very good job of generating scoring chances when they were killing a penalty. And it was a prime feature last year. Ilya Mikheyev without, uh, on a shorthanded opportunity was like almost, almost a guaranteed goal. And then they started to that similar kind of power kill thing at the beginning of the Tampa Bay series. And then it, they just abandoned it. Tampa Bay got wise. They didn't give them the opportunities to do those kind of things. So it, it demolished that game. There's a there's an element in Toronto's game that this year I don't think that they're as focused on generating as much, um, but the power kill is still there. So now it's more strategic, and I'd like to think that they're going to move ahead with doing something like this to the degree that they can't they won't let Tampa Bay find a way to neutralize it going forward here. Um, their power play was lights out last year. Their power play is good, but not as good as it was last year, but I'd like to think that there, and in big moments, it'd be able to, to produce. So going into this series, in comparison to the feelings of going into the Tampa Bay series last year, you should have at least a better sense of this is a better Toronto team that's more capable of being more offensive, better defensively inclined until we get to goaltending. And now goaltending hasn't been bad. I, I, no. I don't have any negative things to say about them. Samsonov has done his job. Matt Murray went healthy, went healthy. That damn when healthy has done his job. But as from a feelings perspective, I don't know whether or not I feel comfortable having one or the or the other take the reins for a long playoff series. You can't. It's just not possible. But the goaltending has been good this year. Legitimately, they've been good. They're a top 10 team in 5-on-5 five five save percentage. Zero issues. 
Yeah, I think it's largely because of the team in front of them and how they're playing and good on key for getting them to buy in defensively. But the goaltending has done its part. There's very few games where I could sit there and say, you know, they got Tosklad, they got Freddie, they got Ego down the list, Pogi, Gustafson. <laughs> it's a murderer's row, right? <laughs> There's very few games where you can point and say that. So by all means, they've generally done their job. The two things that I would note on the flip side, though, and I do think Tampa's gone worse, and we'll talk about Tampa quickly in a sec, but own backyard first. Even though he didn't really play last season, or he played half the season, and he wasn't that good, in the playoffs, Jake Muzzin was good. Agreed. And they don't have him. And I think, and people that compared McCabe to Muzzin was silly. Muzzin was a top-pairing defenseman on a cup-winning team. Muzzin was on Team Canada. Muzzin was very, very good at his prime. And Jake Muzzin, or Jake McCabe, is good. But he is never going to be as good as Jake Muzzin was at his peak. You cannot compare the two. They are definitely different tiers all said and done. And I think McCabe mitigates some of it, to be sure. But Muzzin was very good last year in the playoffs, and they will miss him. And that part hurts. But I do think their defense might be a little bit deeper because they also don't have Ilya Lushkin. And it looks like, I mean, is Riley going to play with Brody? Is he going to play with Shen? I would still put Shen as a bit of an upgrade over Lubushkin. I don't know if I can see a scenario where Shen consistently gets ice time throughout a long playoff run. I'm very me, curious what their plan is with him. To me, I just don't see him being part of a regular top six. I, like you can, obviously the switch could be made, but uh, Giordano and Lilligren, Brody and Riley, and then anybody on the third pairing, I mean, Hall and stick the, it, it really doesn't matter who the sixth is at that point. But I'm not really sure that Shen is that player that's going to stick into that top six. Um, sometimes I think that they lean a little too hard on Giordano too, being the old man that he is, that might become a bit problematic, but I, that, that story around Giordano is actually very, very fantastic. Like the local boy, the, the the discount and and all of that. And the, the, he's in every single game, every single minute, there's no dispute is a total warrior. He loves, he loves it. And I love him for it. Like there's, how could so you I, not? I, I'm kind of hoping that also sparks some stuff that, that that they're able to kind of carry things to. But obviously, the defensive game from Toronto is not just strictly on that blue line. Obviously, to your point, they're never going to be able to replace Muzzin. So you have to tweak, and you're going to have to do things that are going to have to make your blue line whatever it is with whatever asset they have. But their forward group is that just that much better defensively that they close that gap. And they don't allow those second chances, lots of rebounds. Um, they do apply pressure to four checkers to give their defense some time to be able to move pucks out um, or put themselves in positions where they come back in deep to become options to help get the puck out. So the forward group being good defensively, I shouldn't say good. I should be, I should be saying responsibly defensively um, helps out that defensive core because they don't have to be fully defensive. And in the same vein, when it comes to the transition and moving out, they're able to step in and provide some support offensively as well, too. So there's that fluid transition game um, that they're really trying to foster here in Toronto. Um, so I, I, I think the Muzzin loss is big. I, I think that they're able to adapt. I think that the forward group in conjunction with what the defense is right now is probably decent enough 
it still doesn't really change the fact that I have this little pit in the bottom of my stomach with the goaltending and hoping that that doesn't falter and it just becomes a Jack Campbell situation where you're you're just you just need average goaltending. Be good, don't be bad, and we'll work yeah. out all the rest of the kinks from there. The other question to ask because Tavares definitely improved, Nylander definitely improved, Marner maybe will stay same, still very very good. Matthew's still very good, but where is his game at this year compared to last year? So defensively, from specific some some metrics that I've been kind of following, um, I think that he's been better defensively. I couldn't say that he's had a better impact, but his numbers are good. So from a team's perspective, Matthews is also doing another thing too. If he's the one that's providing a bunch of defensive support, that has to play throughout the rest of the roster. If he's doing it, we need to be able to do it too. And there are certain things that you could tell, like for instance, defensive zone touches um, and turning around, Matthews leads the Leafs by a mile. Marner's pretty close. And, and then you could see all the other players fall into place. William Nylander, as great as he is in the offensive zone, isn't necessarily playing that well in the defensive zone. So you make adjustments in order for them to uh, uh, to be as, as capable as possible. I really don't have an issue with the way that Matthews has approached his defensive game this year. It might have saved, or sorry, it might have taken away from the goal totals overall, but I think that it's a vital, vital thing to give up considering um, that he's played a much more rounding game. Um, and I think that that really does concentrate throughout the lineup and they pick up on those little signals and see when your star player is doing things defensively, physically getting involved, not necessarily bash, smash and crash, but at least he's trying to get involved uh, uh, a little bit physically in every part of the, of the ice that plays off. And I'm kind of hoping that that generates a lot more momentum up and down the roster um, and guys pick up on that and hopefully they feed and, 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 and build off that kind of momentum. So I, I think he's been in full marks defensively and he has definitely not mailed it in there. If anything, he's been more detailed to your point. The other part I wonder is just the other side of the ice. And I wasn't expecting him to get 60 again this year and he's still going to have a very productive season. His shot rate's a little bit down. I mean, he's still taking over four shots on net per game. So let's, you know, temper it a little bit. And he is playing his lowest as he's played since his last year with Babs. So it's relative. I understand. But there's just been a lot of the puck goes off his, rolls off his stick. He fans on a one-timer, misses an open net. Mm -hmm. You know, the... The game against Edmonton really stood out for me in that I don't know if they had a great time at the Springsteen concert or what happened there, but <laughs> that was a game that he would get up for in years past. It'd be against McDavid in his house, and you could tell. You'd have shift one, and you'd, and you'd sit back and take a sip of your beer and go, okay, Matthews, he's Matthews ready to is play. here to prove a point. Yep. Yeah, yep. he's here to prove a point tonight. Like he, he wants to make sure you know what's up. And he didn't, he didn't want to make sure anybody knew anything. And I know he picked up an assist. It was a lame one on power on the power play. He did nothing for it. So sometimes people look and go, "Oh, he got a point that game." He did nothing. Let's not fool ourselves. He did. That was about as weak an effort I've seen him put forward hmm. against McDavid head to head. I would love him to come back. In they're about to play Edmonton this Saturday in Toronto. I would love for him to come back with a statement. That would actually make me feel a lot better. I just. I don't know. 
pit of my stomach. I think it's I think we're far enough along now that it's worthy of a discussion to at least just say is everything okay here? Is is he playing like hurt or or like what's going on? So I I would venture to say that he's, obviously everybody's kind of banged up at this point in the in the season but I mean he doesn't come back for the second the start of the second period on Saturday to your point there are these little things that he probably was like catching a puck in midair or or an extension or something um kind of similar to what I was saying before going into scrums and coming out with pucks he's not doing that as much anymore so it's not the Matthews that we saw that was the Matthews of of six it wasn't the 60 goal score Matthews we're seeing a little bit more of a subdued player I'd like to think that that's just because of more defensive responsibility but I think that there is some truth to what you're saying he's not 100% it could be a wrist problem something from from last year it it doesn't look like it's a lower body thing but you never know with him right because he's going to play through it and he's going to be a horse so I guess that statement game next against Edmonton is probably something that he's probably had in the back of his head and saying, you know what, we shit the bed there. Let's hope that we have a better response. They did come up with a better response against Calgary. And I guess that that has a little bit to do with coaching, kicking their ass a little bit. But as a player, the pride that you get in your hometown against the best player in the world. Yeah, I think you're right. He shows up or at least he needs to show up, give us a statement game. And even if he gets no points and they don't win or whatever, as long as you show up, yeah, just do your job and we'll figure out the results as they kind of come along. And I think that that's kind of thing. The one thing that I did want to say about Matthews too, at five on five, he gets a point on two thirds of every goal that are scored on uh, while he's on the ice. So in the past, he was getting points on about 75 to 85% of shots. I'm sorry, of goals scored while he was on the ice. So for every 100 goals, he was getting 85 points. Now he's only getting 67 points for every 100 that are scored. So that's a significant enough drop yeah. to think that at five on five, there's something there. Something is... The shot rates are there. The results aren't there. Obviously, the shooting percentage is lower. But there's something else above and beyond what we're seeing on the ice that's bothering him. He's on pace, or he's tracking to have his worst goal scoring rate since his rookie season. And I mean, part of this is the bar that he's set so high. Because, to be clear, he's scoring at a .5 goals per game rate. I mean, the guy is unreal. Scoring. Yeah. So if, you know... Him having an off year, playing a little banged up, is forty goals. The Leafs get home ice in the first round. I don't give a shit. Like yeah. I don't care. I'm not gonna look back and be like, remember when I know who Matthews is? You know, it's like the Kevin Durant thing. Like I know who I am. I know who he is. He's he's good. I'm not worried. I'm only bringing it up in the context of I hope this guy's good to go for the playoffs, and I hope he's able to ratchet it up and and get ready to go because that's really all that matters here. And part of me, and this could just be me in my head, you know, making it up and saying more that I hope that this is the case than whether it's, it is the case. But I'd like to think that it partly is. is part of me is, is thinking that he's sitting there going, I also don't care until the playoffs. Like, I've had enough of this. Like, we lost in the first round every year. He's really the only guy that's vocally, like, straight up said this is embarrassing. On the like, No one else has to the direct level that he has. I I think they're I think they all find it embarrassing to be clear, but he's the only one that's really 
kind of gone out of his way to note that so explicitly. And so a large part of me just says, you know what? I think he's kind of chugging along and he really only cares about playoffs, but I would like to see, you know, this game against Edmonton, the occasional statement game where he kind of reminds everyone, like, let's not get fooled here. Like I can do this whenever I want. Yeah. Like, that's, that's all I want to see. And then, you know, I think that's a good transition to Tampa because I'm watching them and it's like, there are holes. Like they miss Andre Palat. They miss Ryan McDonough. I remember looking last year and Mikel Surichev played over 22 and a half minutes last year. And when they lost McDonough, I went and looked at it because I said, okay, well, Surichev will just play those minutes. And I saw that he was already playing over 22 and a half. And I thought to myself, I mean, how much more can this guy play? Mm-hmm. And he is playing like a minute and change more. But I think that he's maxed out. Like he isn't a near 24 minute defender the way that they have him. And I think you're feeling it. Like, I'm, I'm not saying it's Mikhail Sergachev's fault, but he is definitely being tasked with too much responsibility that he can't play up to. And, like, you saw against the Leafs when they played earlier this year, just, like, horrendous giveaway middle of the ice. And it's like, that's the crap, you know? That's that's so what the young defensemen do. Part of also being a championship team that has consistently tried to be at the top of their game for the last... Well, let's just call it a decade. Um, sometimes players end up becoming miscast. So you have no choice, but you have to jettison a Ryan McDonough because you, you're in cap hell. And now you elevate Sergachev to a point where he's effective, but then it becomes ineffective. You get to a point of diminishing returns. And that's kind of where I think we are probably with that. And I'm sure that that's happening throughout the Tampa Bay line uh, lineup. It's not just one little area, but that's a great example of Sergachev right there. Um, you have a world-class goaltender in Vasilevsky that can backstop you with some just incredible goaltending um, in it just inopportune times if you're trying to play the Tampa Bay Lightning. He's um, terrifying. He's terrifying. He, that is the one element that I th- I'm really not very good at judging goalies, but Vasilevsky gives me that confidence that says, that guy, he's a wall. So we can do whatever we want. We're good in net. Um, but this is still a very talented team up front, up top. And I think that they're really top heavy. If their stars produce, they become a very difficult team to play against, but there are holes. There are some tactical holes that I think that teams can exploit. And I think that the Leafs have probably started looking at that um, specifically on the power play because the Leafs power play is really damn dynamic. And I love that. Um, I wouldn't wouldn't say that Tampa Bay is going to be a pushover because that's definitely not going to happen. They have a lot of really, really good talented players, Um, but there are things that can be, ripped open and that's where i think that toronto is going to try to be able to kind of move things around the one thing that i like about toronto's lineup that 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 gives them that opportunity is moving nylander and marner up on the first and the second line so you're able to if tampa bay adjusts to a certain look you're able to switch it up and then force them to make changes on their end and if they're already miscasting players now being able to do those positional and, and line switches along the seri- in a long series, it's going to screw up that opposition with regardless at some point. Someone else is going to become miscast at a point, and you're not going to have Nick Paul scoring two goals in a game seven on a consistent enough basis to say that this team has got the jam enough to be able to beat any team in any place. Um, so that's kind of where I think that Tampa Bay is. I think that there's enough vulnerability there that if the coaching staff in Toronto really pinpoints where they can take make the most and exploit 
I don't know what I'm trying to say here. If they can exploit the weaknesses that Tampa Bay seems to really be showing this year, I think that it's the series tips to Toronto's favor. If Tampa Bay's stars play like they are and they don't have any injuries, it can, can potentially even just go in Tampa Bay's way. There's no guarantees in even the first round here. Yeah, I think Tampa is just a little bit I mean the the margins were razor thin last round. Like uh, let's Correct. not kid ourselves. It's not Tampa. It wasn't a three one yeah, it wasn't a three one series upset like it was no. the loss to Montreal. That hurt. Last year, it is what it is. Right. So you look at that and and you just look at their roster and go, Palat was huge for them. Palat has generally been a playoff gamer for them over this tenure of success that they've had. McDonough has been a toy. He's a warrior. I love McDonough as a player. Uh, I understand that he's on the back nine, but kudos to him. Hell of a career. He was a fantastic captain for the New York Rangers. I was happy to see him get his cups. He deserves it. Uh, great, great career for him. I mean, those are big losses. Hagel has stepped up and that's somewhat helped mitigate the loss of plot. Mm-hmm. And that's, and that's been big, but then, you know, it's the domino effect of now he's not on your third line. So now they have to trade for Tanner Janot. But the one thing that I do wonder about Tampa in comparison to the Leafs is their lineup is not in flux. They know who their lineup is. These are their lines. This is what you are getting out of them. And there is something to be said for that because they're going to get 20 games here to get it on a roll. And the Leafs are not going to be getting that now, especially because Ryan O'Reilly's hurt. And building that continuity I think is important. Whereas I think we've gone into playoffs and we've seen the opposite with Keith where very quickly he has been unsure of his lines and changed things up. And that uncertainty creates doubt and that creates problems in your lineup. Whereas Tampa will be very steadfast where I would question Tampa now is, and I mean, we're not in the room, but you just look at it from the outsider view of, Cooper benches the stars, fair, so be it. They laid an egg. But then they come back out and lay maybe the worst egg that they've laid in like five years, maybe longer. And that's bad. Like that, that is, if you are following that team, like that is, you're kind of going, okay, like they had zero shots on net in the second period. Like that, that is 911 level stuff. So, that is a very valid point because good teams find ways to play themselves out of those kind of situations. Um, we probably could have been making the same argument last year around this time too. They were faltering, things weren't going very well, whatever the case is. And then they put it all together and they come out versus the Leafs game one and there's the Stanley Cup contenders once again. So, but you know, at, at the same time, I kind of want to go back to what I was saying before. If the Leafs find a way to break what Tampa Bay thinks is their team, then they're able to miscast or put players in spots where they're not able to fully produce at their best. That's where I think that Toronto could potentially um, have their, create their advantage. And I use the example of, of the power kill. 
Tampa Bay figured out Toronto likes to create a lot of offensive chances while killing a penalty. They put themselves in a position where they never really had to deal with that anymore. That neutralizes Toronto's power kill almost entirely. That's a big part of your game. And when it's a big part of your game, it changes the, the complexity of it. So now it's Toronto's chance to be able to kind of do something like that. If you break their lineup and you force them to start tinkering and you're not able and you're not putting your team in a position where they have to change the way that they play in order for them to do that, that I think is a very good recipe for success. So for Toronto, I think at, the, at this point in time, I'm not too concerned, kind of similar to what you were saying last uh, uh, about O'Reilly. You could plug them in whenever they plug them in. Him not being in the lineup is not really an issue, but they do have a lot of lower roster turnover. They need to figure that shit out and, and they're yeah. going to have a good slew of games to be able to do that. They're going to have to figure out that defensive core because now it's changed enough where they have to figure out how to do stuff. Their stars have to continue to produce. And if they continue to produce, they don't have any problems. So they get in, into Tampa Bay's face. They say, we're not going to play your kind of game and allow you to dictate those terms we're going to dictate those terms and hopefully they break their lineup so that certainty that tampa bay has of who their players are that certainty dies after that first break in the first series and hopefully that's the thing that kind of shifts the favor in toronto's way the other thing of note here too is the leafs definitely did go to pains to increase the depth on their defense and acquire players that they believe will be better fits come playoff time which I understand. I was always very uncertain of Rasmus Sandin as a third-pairing defenseman, strictly five-on-five five in the playoffs, uh, especially against two good four-checking teams in Tampa and Boston. But on the flip side, I mean, Boston or Tampa, sorry, could be rocking a third-pairing featuring like Ian Cole and Nicholas Perbix. Like that is not good. Like the yeah. Leafs should be feasting on that. Like Holes. they should be eating those guys. Zach Bogosian might be on the top pairing. And with Zach Victor Hedman, and that's another reason where I just look and say, you know what, do you just load up the top line and just completely overwhelm them? Because before you might play into Tampa's hand and let's say they even put Cernak back with Hedman and you really make them focus on that first unit. But now you have a little bit more juice on the second unit. If it's, let's say O'Reilly and Nylander or O'Reilly and Marner, hmm. you're like, oh man, those guys have to go against you know, Mikhail Sergachev and possibly Zach Bogosian in that scenario. It's like, okay, I'm okay with that. You know, Tampa's second line with Anthony Sorelli and, you know, Alex Kalorn and maybe Brandon Hagel. Like, yeah, I'll take that bet. Yeah, I, I think O'Reilly and Marner eat them alive. And I, I, I rate Sorelli very highly. I think Sorelli is a total gamer. He, he is very impressive come playoff time. Absolutely. You could, but, you could see it from his yeah. OHL days. My God. But, yeah. Like like he is one where I always laughed when they, they said Team Canada for Sorelli, and then I <laughs> dialed in on him on the playoffs. I was like, nah, that, that makes sense. I can see what they're saying there. Yeah, yeah I, I see why he was like, yeah, you know, if that's your 13th forward, you're going to feel okay about it. But the rest, you know, Kaloran is getting up there in age. I understand he's kept up the production and whatnot, but he's not the same force that he Absolutely. once was. And, and Hagel's good, but, you know, we're talking Marner and O'Reilly here. We're not, you know, like like those guys are serious players. You put bunting on that line. Like the, the Leafs have to like that matchup. I mean, I think they could break them by overwhelming that top line. And then to your point, you that's a chink in the armor there that they got to figure out. And as long as they can beat Vasilevsky to some degree, 
it, it, Tampa having to sort around that with their roster limitations now makes it a lot more difficult. I'm kind of hoping to, one of the things that I also was a little skeptical about, I thought that, and, and I'm probably the only one here, but I thought that Marner became less effective as the series wore on last mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. Um, I couldn't pinpoint a specific thing, but you know, I just felt like he wasn't the star that he was in game one towards game seven. It's not that he wasn't a good player. It's just that he wasn't as effective as he was. So I'd like to think now with the way that Nylander has emerged with the improvements in John Tavares, that the Leafs can, if they find any kind of struggling, be able to change up those forward pairings to find the combination that works best for them, that will eventually break the Tampa Bay Lightning. So if they have a consistent effort and the consistent productivity that they're getting from their forwards now, um, and they're able to kind of switch it up and change it up and always provide a new look to something that Tampa Bay can't kind of conform around, um, I think that they have a very good chance of just overwhelming them to the degree of going back to miscasting and breaking their lineup. That's how I think that they should approach that. Now, Boston is a different animal. They don't have the obvious roster restrictions. I mean, straight up, they're deeper on... I mean, not only are they deeper than the Leafs on defense, they're more talented across the board. I mean, the Leafs don't have anyone comparable to Charlie McAvoy. I mean, I would... I would probably argue that Hampus Lindholm walks into the Leafs and he would be their top defenseman. You can make a case for that. Right? And I won't say Orloff, but Orloff is really good. Uh, I don't think he would be Leafs' best defenseman, but Orloff is very good. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they don't have any really things that you can exploit on defense per se. Their forward group is interesting. You know, Father Time is still undefeated. I understand what they're doing. I do wonder about Tampa or Boston after, you know, maybe they got that series against the Sens. Maybe we see Brady Kachuk running around for six games. It's a little bit hectic. You know, I get that it's round two, so I wouldn't expect them to be battered and bruised the way Tampa was playing Colorado in the cup final. But I would look at Boston and say, how are they going to hold up? You know, how how is this group going to age in here? So I thought that Boston's blue line was the best in the league prior to picking up Orlov. Orlov just is, that that makes that blue line is difficult. So any issues that they have in net, and we talked about a little bit about Allmark. Um, I think that a lot of those deficiencies get masked by a phenomenal blue line. The forward unit I feel is a little top heavy. There's still question marks around whether or not Taylor Hall will be fully operational by the time the playoffs start if he is then obviously that's another quiver in there or or another in their quiver um and i think that they're dangerous two lines they have depth enough to be able to kind of maintain and and control other teams like boston is a dangerous team all around the blue line itself is containing the forwards can bite you at any given moment you have the quickness in pasternak who's a legit superstar marshawn is always uh, marshawn Father Time might be uh, undefeated, but there's a point in time where Bergeron has to kind of temper those expectations. Father Time can get injured, but he may not necessarily die. <laughs> so at some point in time, we'll see a little bit of those diminishing returns too. But I'm not really sure that that's it this year. They brought back Gracie, who has just stepped into the lineup after missing an entire season in the NHL, you know, almost seamlessly. So they have enough power up front 
and defensive stability that really makes Boston the absolute favorite. And even if the Leafs are, whether they go seven games or they sweep the Tampa Bay Lightning, they're going to have to hope that that team that plays Boston in the first round shows some kind of chinks in their armor so that they're able to formulize a plan around those strategic inefficiencies. Because I can't at this point see whether or not Boston is going to be beatable by almost any team in the East, regardless of the warfare the trade deadline became to to ramp up uh, every contending team. Boston is still the cream of the crop, and they're the team to beat. I think I think the toughest thing that would have to be sorted out when it comes to the Bruins, and obviously this is why they do it, is you have Pasternak, and he's not on the Marshawn Bergeron line. Mm. And you have to kind of sort that out. And now they have Bertuzzi, who they might just throw on the third line with Charlie Coyle and potentially Taylor Hall, and it's a joke. So you kind of look at that, and you look at the Leafs' defense, and you look at the depth of that group, and it's kind of like, well, who's playing against who? (laughs) And that is very problematic. And I kind of look – I know we talked about Shen. To me, Shen is someone who maybe won't play that much against Tampa – but I could see him playing quite a bit against Boston who doesn't, they are good in the neutral zone, but I don't consider them a burner team. Mm. They will work the walls. I think he would do a much better job at stopping cycles of being physical with them in front of the net, like all the crap that Boston likes to try to pull off. He would make a lot more sense to me in that series than Timothy Lilligren as just a physical force. And I mean, Chen is a house. I mean, he is, an absolute fridge on this on ice like he just you cannot move that man so i I, you know that's kind of how i i don't want to get too far ahead of projecting what would happen against boston because so far in the future but you know when i look at it i just say how would i maneuver these d pairings where you know the rest of that line against the Pasternak line, funny enough, like doesn't particularly scare me. Like they're good players, but they're nothing crazy. Not not anymore. Unless playoff Krejci circa 10 years ago starts to show up, which I mean, the guy played like glorified men's league in the Czech Republic last season and then walked back into the show like it was like nothing. So I guess it's possible, but I mean, I wouldn't fear them. I think you could probably just assign a really good defenseman against Pasternak and be like, follow this guy around the ice. And then focus like an actual shutdown pairing against the Bergeron Marchand line, which I think is just a complete line that is even more terrifying. And now you have a horse in O'Reilly who you'd be like, you know what? You're going to go up against Bergeron all night, and we're going to have Matthews. You're going to go dial in against Krejci. And you really have to look at camp and say, like, just don't get scored on. Like Thomas Placanich and his little leaf uh, run there. It's like, we know you're going to get caved, but like, if you don't get scored on, like, We'll figure out the rest. Yeah, don't worry. We'll keep. Yeah, yeah. just yeah. The thirty seventy. Just fucking don't get scored on, and like we'll be okay. <laughs> like that's it. Like doesn't there's some, matter. There's some depth in Boston that can 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 do some damage too. Don't sleep on Pavel Zaka or even Jake DeBrusque. Mm-hmm. Like those guys can do damage if put in a position. So Zaka I, can shoot, man. It's, oh, absolutely. Oh. I, and he can skate to positions where he can exploit that shooting technique. That's a really good good characteristic of a shooter. Um, I, I'm, I'm wondering, though, because I, 
again, I kind of go back to that flipping the Marner into the second line to Tavares and Nylander. Yeah. I, I like the fact that Toronto can kind of do something like that. If something's not working, yeah. specifically they get to test it to Tampa Bay. If they beat Tampa Bay, now they're going to have to figure that, uh, that stuff out in Boston. I kind of wonder if that once again becomes one of their plays because as the Leafs have to strategize to Boston, Boston has to strategize to Toronto. So how do you make up? Who do you cover? Defensive pairings are probably a lot easier now, at least against the forward units. Um, something I think that isn't the liberty that Toronto has, or at least the advantage that Toronto has. Um, but they still have to play against Marner and Matthews, and they can be just as dangerous in the playoffs as they are in the regular season. Um, and if they don't get you a rejuvenated Tavares and Nylander can, Ryan O'Reilly can be that good complementary player, and the rest of the players kind of just kind of fall into that that in, into whatever category they fall into. So the depth that the Bruins have, I think, is very similar to the depth that Toronto has. Maybe not to the scoring effectiveness, um, but they're able to skate with both teams. Um, it's the blue line I think that just really makes the difference in Boston. And if that blue line falters, or if there's injuries. Or if there's something that happens that creates some kind of uncertainty back there, all of a sudden that Boston may not necessarily look as as dominant as we're expecting them to be. Yeah, and I think that's for the Leafs and their grindy group of forwards, especially on the bottom half, would have to kind of balance it a little bit, right? It'd be like, obviously our defense isn't as good as yours and it's not as deep. It doesn't have as much quality, but our forwards are very good defensively and they're going to check like crazy and they're yeah. just going to make they're going to make you miserable. And I think like we talked about Ottawa, but you know, if the Islanders get to the mm. play them in the Islanders will make the, their life hell. Like I, I think the Islanders gets at least six out of, out of the Bruins. It's a veteran. They, they would have the best goalie in that series. I think I don't care what Omar seasons had. I think the Islanders have the best goalie in that series. Like mm-hmm. that is a problem, you know, like they're, they're one of those annoying teams. And I kind of look at the Leafs now and I kind of look at their past week and I almost looked at their team and went, is this team actually now more of like, like more of a playoff team than a regular season team? You know, it's not like Pierre Engvall, like on third line anymore. We were watching like, yeah, like he gets his 15 goals. He's pretty good. He's like a good, like Tuesday player against like Columbus or whatever. Now you're like, you're watching them and going like, yeah, like these, like they have these grinders that are just going to like, they're going to wear teams down over seven, but like on any given night, they just kind of, whatever like it is what it is they don't they don't chip in enough offensively or whatever the case is and and i kind of look at the team and go ah like they're they're a little bit more suited to be physical in nature and and wear opponents down and guys who understand their roles you talked about that calgary game and there was a point in it which i'm sure you remember where it was it was still tied and achari just absolutely mm-hmm. buzzsawed zadaroff like he got him and I know he didn't go down, but Zadorov tried to fight him. Or Zadorov tried to fight him after the whistle. And Achari laughed in his face because I'm sure he knew he would get crushed in that fight. Of course. <laughs> but just the fact, just the way that he dialed that up and like the Leafs' response as a team and the way the intensity just kind of increased. And you're watching it and, and he kind of sensed like, we need to up the tone a little bit here and the way that that worked. And it's the kind of thing that they've been missing other than Kyle Clifford crushing Ross Colton from behind <laughs> two minutes into <laughs> game one. They've, they've really missed those guys who said, who just go out there with a purpose of inflicting some pain. Poor checking and physicality are things that 
they did well forge checking. Their physical game wasn't necessarily there. I think that they got a speedy group. May have lost a little bit of speed with Angwell gone, but that I don't think is a big issue. Um, but their forge checking game is going to be that much better. And you could send a fourth line out there knowing that they can create a lot of hitting. They could create a lot of physicality. And they could put other teams on their heels. So it's not necessarily a, a okay, we're going to throw you guys out for a minute just so that you're able to kind of give our star players a rest. They're, no, they're, there's a role now for them. Something that really wasn't available on the third and fourth line last year. Last year, it was just go out, try scoring goals, try scoring, try scoring, try score. And if they couldn't score, they weren't being effective any other way. At least now you have some line or semblance of a group of players on that bottom roster that if they're not going to be scoring, they're going to be doing something to add some physical punishment, to wear teams down, to make sure that there's always somebody looking over their shoulder whenever they're going into the corner to, to get a loose puck. Things that were never really available to Toronto all of a sudden are. So I'm kind of hoping that you're right, that they offer another element that was desperately needed that would make them, I guess we'll use the quote, unquote, a playoff team something to be a lot harder to play against. Um, I love playing the game, or I love the fact that you can score your way out of trouble, but unfortunately, that's just not the case. You don't assemble skilled teams to win 6-5. You assemble skilled teams to be able to balance the scoring generation across four units and win 2-1 every fucking night. So if they're able to do something like that and they get above and beyond scoring from a unit that just is there to um, do other things with other role, then I think that they're gravy. They're rolling in it. And I think that this is something that hasn't been around in Toronto for the last three, four years. And it was something that was desperately missing. We all hear the narrative about toughness and they're a soft team. And I don't think that they're soft. I don't think that they're not tough. I just don't think that it was balanced enough along the scoring lines to be able to productively become a good team. And I think that they've positioned themselves much better going into this playoff series than they have in the last two or even three. It wasn't cohesive. I mean, you would look at the third and fourth line and shrug and say they're just shitty versions of the top two lines. And then Keith would inevitably do that. And come playoff time, he'd be like, why am I playing these guys? And then Matthews and Marner would be playing 24, 25 a night. And it just went downhill from there. So now you look at that build out from the fourth line and the third line and kind of the pieces they have at play. And it, it's a lot more conducive to go take a D zone draw, go for check like crazy for a shift, you know, a tap on the shoulder on the bench. And like, it's like, don't even turn your head back and look at me. Like just you hop the bench and you know what that meant. And just a little bit more of, you know, go change the pace of this game, go change the energy of this game. And all of those things that kind of they add up over a seven game series, especially when you're playing, you know, Tampa looks in shambles right now. But I think they're going to figure it out to some yeah, degree. They're, 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 they're not there. about to get waxed in the first round. They're going to they're going to be there. So even even something, though, like we were, we were talking prior to this about um, like using Mitch Martin as a defenseman. On Saturday, that may not necessarily be the best of of <laughs> scenarios in order to do that. But if you do that in a playoff series, in a game where it forces the opposition to make some kind of strategic move, that's a plus. So the flexibility isn't so much on just the roster or the roster construction, the things that each individual line can give you. It's the ability for Keith 
to keep the other team on their toes and force them to make adjustments that they don't want to make on a consistent basis. If Tampa can't play their quote-unquote team, then they have to constantly be adjusting. You constantly put players in bad spots. You create an advantage for your own club. Hopefully, and I mean, we've both questioned some of the things that Keith might have done since his tenure here in Toronto. Um, I'd I'd like to think with the roster construction, the way that it is, having the best lineup that he's had, having a good enough vision to know where to play his players best, and having some sensibility to load up lines in, in, in certain occasions, um, I think that they'll figure it out. And this may not necessarily be a skilled versus physicality. It may be something that two coaches end up vying for rather than the players on the ice. So there's a lot of chess games that I think that are potentially available in the playoffs. Um, that we haven't even thought of yet things <laughs> that we're going to see that are just going to make this series that much more intrusive. I'm sure we'll figure them out as time goes on. We've been here for a while. I'll give you the floor for any closing thoughts. You've been publicly quiet for all season, which I'm sure has sucked to some degree. So the floor is yours, Gus, before we sign off. So thank you. Before I do that, thank you again uh, uh, for having me on. I really, really do appreciate this. Um, it it absolutely sucks not being able to comment more extensively than I can. Um, having this as a forum, even being able to just say whatever we've been discussing tonight, like that, it's a huge, huge way of of, of, of expressing some ideas. Yeah, like I, I'm, oh, it's it's a huge load off my chest that I just haven't been able to do that. And sometimes I'm watching games and I'm and and I'm just like, okay, I want to twit. No, I'm not going to do that. Oh, I want to. Uh, no, I'm not going to say that. So it's nice to be able to just have a, a, an opportunity to get a bunch of this stuff off my chest. I kind of hope that we get to see some entertaining hockey from here to the end of the, the regular season. Nobody seriously gets hurt. Um, and I'm really looking forward to the playoffs. I don't think I've been as excited more uh, for the playoffs as much as I have this year. I guess the trade deadline has also kind of brought in a new appreciation for some of the players that we did have and adding those complimentary pieces, um, goaltending and crossing those fingers that it holds up because if it holds up and they get average or better goaltending, I think that Toronto could be a very dangerous team. Get through the Tampa Bay Lightning, figure out a way to break through that Boston defensive goodness. And I think that they have a free run to the finals if that's the case. I'm putting you on the spot, but you think they would win round one this year? I'm going to go out and say I think that they can beat Tampa Bay. I get what we've discussed overall. I think that Toronto is in a better position. Last year was more of a coin flip. You know what they didn't do, which I'm kind of hoping they have done this year? They haven't had a killer instinct ever. From the point where they were up 3-2 against Boston and they weren't able, with their foot on Boston's throat, weren't able to close out that series, I'd like to see Toronto make sure that they get that killer instinct. And I think that they've developed a little bit of it. Last year has to leave a bitter taste in their mouth. I think that Toronto has the advantage going into the uh, into this series. It's redemption here. Perfect closing note. Go Leafs go. And uh, hopefully we'll see everyone again next week. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Bye, guys.